I'm Justin Voss, and this is Built in Motion. A show about life and engineering. So picture yourself standing right alongside the Mississippi River. And just across the water is St. Louis. You might be seeing the downtown skyline with its tall city buildings, and of course, who doesn't think of St. Louis's Gateway Arch? And then there's the traffic of the city, people commuting to and from work across the multiple bridges. But right now, there is no arch. There are no tall buildings, and there is no traffic. That's because it's 1854, and at this time, there wasn't even a bridge in St. Louis crossing the Mississippi River. So now, instead of tall buildings and cars around you, you're standing on the shore of the Mississippi in the middle of the 19th century. You see the beautiful Victorian riverboats traveling up and down the Mississippi. And just over your shoulder is the sound of a slowing train as it pulls into station. And once it stops, immediately hard-working English, Irish, and German immigrants are offloading the cargo from the train and onto ferries to be transported a third of a mile to the other side, where some of the cargo is separated out to stay in the growing city, and the rest is loaded back onto trains to head out west. Now, there were bridges that crossed the Mississippi at this time, but before the Eads Bridge, no one had attempted to build one big enough to cross the wide section of river that ran through St. Louis. We came across this story from Ed Plocker. Ed lives in St. Louis and happens to be a history major and just a general history and architecture buff. Before the Eads Bridge, there were no major bridges across the Mississippi because of its length and because the materials that they had to build with could not span that far. And so it wasn't until just before the Eads Bridge started to be built that bridges started popping up farther north nearer to Chicago, and that's kind of what put the fire in St. Louis uh, to get a bridge built across the river so that they wouldn't fall farther behind. The Eads Bridge gets its name from its lead engineer and builder, James B. Eads. Eads and his family moved to St. Louis when he was a young boy, um, and he started working on the river in his early 20s and was always kind of mechanically minded, you know, was interested in uh, engineering and fixing things. And as he worked on the river for three years uh, on steamboats going up and down, uh, he started to develop this idea of of what he called his submarine boat. Eads was not a trained engineer. He was self-taught. That is trained engineer. Ryan Isabel. But that didn't limit his abilities or his confidence to tackle large projects. He designed and developed these submarine boats. They were large, flat-decked boats with two pontoons. They were designed to lower a diving bell down into the river to recover goods that had fallen off the ferries during transportation across the river. A diving bell is a rigid structure used to transport divers to a specific depth. 
Diving bells in the 1800s worked similarly to sticking a cup upside down in the water. The diver would then ride down in the trapped pocket of air. Eads built his diving bells from a 40-gallon whiskey barrel that he had a rubber hose coming out from the top that allowed air to be pumped in from the ship down to the bell. Eads would basically take that boat, um, kind of anchored it with a line, uh, and he would go down on that diving bell himself. He would walk along the bottom of the river, uh, kind of east to west and then back west to east, and the ship would just, or the, the boat, uh, would just keep moving either north or south, depending which way they were going, until he found something. When they found something, um, he would use that series of pulleys and, uh, and pull that stuff back up onto the boat. and then either sell it for cost or he sold it to an insurance company or back to the company itself um, and made quite a large amount of money, uh, was able to retire by the time he was 37. These salvage boats are really what put Eads on the map, both financially and as an engineer. He was able to make a lot of money in a relatively short amount of time because people were willing to pay a premium to have their goods recovered. And if something had been lost for five years or longer, Eads could claim it as his own. He was just supremely fascinated with the river. He wanted to understand it, um, and um, he wanted to understand the science of it and the way it moved and the way it changed, and he used that knowledge to take advantage of um, the salvage business and just and just make a, a really good living out of it. James Eads sold his successful salvage business and was set on retiring. But then this pretty big event called the Civil War broke out, and his engineering skills were called upon again. The American Civil War took place from April 12, 1861 to May 9, 1865, lasting four years, three weeks, and six days. During the Civil War, Missouri was considered a border state and gave troops and supplies to both sides, but officially the state remained part of the Union and tried to stay neutral. Because of Eads' wealth and connections in Washington, like the fact that his mother's cousin was James Buchanan. James Buchanan was the 15th president of the United States. Buchanan served right up to the start of the Civil War. So he got a call from his attorney general friend, Edward Bates, to consult with Washington on the defense of the Mississippi River. Soon after that, he was contracted to design and build ironclad gunboats that could travel in and around the river's shallow inlets. I don't know if he was the first uh, engineer to, to build ironclads, but he was certainly the first uh, to build these kind of flat-bottom ironclads along the Mississippi. An ironclad was a steam-powered warship primarily used in the mid to late 1800s. The city-class ironclads were designed to travel in the shallow riverways of the Mississippi during the Civil War. These were often called Pook Turtles or Eads gunboats. And it allowed the river to stay open uh, during the Civil War. Following the Civil War, St. Louis's politics were kind of a mess. While everyone did seem to have a good amount of civic pride, they just weren't able to get anything done politically. But once Chicago really started to take over as far as a transportation powerhouse with the rise of railroads and canals, and um, um, St. Louis saw itself falling farther and farther behind. Not everyone thought the bridge was a great idea. The new rail traffic would decrease the demand for river ferries. The Wiggins Ferry Company, which had a monopoly in the area, 
lobbied against the bridge, and succeeded in getting provisions added requiring a minimum 500-foot-wide center span and at least 50 feet of water clearance, conditions that were thought by many prominent engineers at the time to make the bridge impossible to build. In early 1867, the bridge project was approved and included the undermining requirements set by the ferry companies. James B. Eads was selected as the engineer-in-chief by the St. Louis and Illinois Bridge Company. Eads presented his design to the company's director in July of the same year, and construction quickly began on the bridge a month later. Most bridges were being built with either trusses or suspension, not the kind of classic Roman-style arches that Eads used in his bridge. Um, And so it was kind of out of the style of the time. Um, Nobody thought it would work, um, kind of laughingly said that. The Eads Bridge started construction in 1867. To put things into perspective on what was going on in 1867, Wilbur Wright was born this year, Jesse James was still robbing banks out west, and Nebraska became the 37th state admitted to the Union. Andrew Carnegie, who provided most of the steel and stood to profit from the project, didn't even believe in Eads. Carnegie said that that Eads was an original genius minus the scientific knowledge to guide his erratic ideas of things mechanical. So um, so nobody really thought that this bridge was going to um, actually hold up. Um, and generally the, the, the way that bridge building seemed to work in the mid-1800s was that our, our reach exceeded our grasp. Um, they understood how to build things, but they didn't necessarily know the, the scientific reasons for why those things failed or did not fail. It wasn't like Eads was all alone designing this bridge. He had many engineers who were immigrants from Germany helping on the project, and you can see that influence in the overall design. If you think about, or if you look at the design of the bridge, there are um, there are kind of two let's call it three separate um, sections of the bridge. You have the piers and the abutments, which go down into the ground and hold it up. You have the, the three spans of arch, uh, which connect it. And then the, the, um, the double deck um, train line, which is on the bottom, and then roadway, which is on the top. Nothing is above the roadway. So the top of the bridge is flat. And like Ed said, under the roadway are two sets of train tracks almost hidden inside the bridge. Holding up the roadway and the train tracks are the three arches, which are supported by two pillars that go deep below the Mississippi River. So spanning the river from the Illinois side over to the Missouri side is the bridge with the three arches supported by two pillars. The center arch is the one that's 500 foot wide and 50 foot tall where the majority of the river boats would pass beneath. It's difficult to describe this bridge because there's so many pieces of steel which are intertwined almost like a like a spider web. There's lots of um there's lots of triangulation. These arches are not are not concrete arches. They're all bent steel. And for each arch, there's probably twenty different pieces of, of steel which are arched and they're all connected. Then from these arches There's pieces of steel that are almost going straight up to support the train tracks and the roadway. And there's three of these that make up the total span crossing the river. Then on each side, there's the embankments, which are concrete. There's also pillars in between these arches supporting the roadway. The structure of the bridge was made using some wrought iron. But more importantly, it also used structural steel for the superstructure. 
This was the first project of this size to use steel and helped give birth to the steel industry. This was all made possible by a new process for making steel. So the Bessemer process, uh, this guy, I think it was Henry Bessemer, um, was an English inventor, um, and he invented a system for making steel, or making cheap steel, rather. And what he found was that uh, if while he was melting ore, he kind of forced a certain amount of air through that melted ore, uh, it would uh, tend to burn off the impurities in the ore and would make uh, this very strong... um, but also very cheap to produce steel, the structural steel. And before uh, Bessemer invented this process, steel was very, very expensive, um, would only be used in, uh, in very small amounts. The Bessemer process for refining steel was patented in 1856, just 11 years before construction started on the Eads Bridge. Another method, called the open hearth furnace, was developed around the same time that the bridge construction started. Both of these methods were put into heavy use by steel producers such as Andrew Carnegie. You think about um, what, back in the medieval ages, um, swords, armor, um, these things were made out of steel, but only people who had a large amount of wealth were able to afford steel at any um, in any large amount because it cost a lot to produce. But once Bessemer created this process, all of a sudden the cost of producing steel really dropped. And so we can build with this stronger material that is now cheaper. Let's absolutely build with that. Steel for building structures was still a very new concept and it had not been proven out. Because of this, not many engineers had faith in it. Uh, Neither steel makers nor engineers were certain what steel was, much less how it might behave in a structural application. Uh, all they understood was that this, this stuff is stronger than wrought iron, but they didn't have, you know, kind of a deep scientific understanding of what, I guess, um, at which point steel would fail or, um, or how long it would last. Eads insisted on consistent quality material to be used on his bridge. I can imagine how frustrating that would be for Carnegie. But when you're putting your name on the line making bridges, the last thing you would want is one shoddy piece of steel taking down the whole bridge, because it could happen. The deck itself of the bridge, that was really the easiest part, uh, but it was the it was the connecting the spans and getting the pillars built down into the bedrock that, that kind of caused them the most challenge. What Eads had to do was build these abutments and the two piers that were in the middle of the river down into the bedrock in order for him to, to build a structurally sound bridge. Um, and in order to go down into the bedrock, he had to go through anywhere from 20 to 40 feet of water and then 50 to 60 feet of sand before he got to um, bedrock. The first piece of construction was started on the St. Louis side abutment. An abutment is the solid structure on each side of a bridge. The abutment provides vertical and lateral support, and also in the case of a bridge, can serve as a retaining wall against the earth on each side of the span. Just a few months after construction started, Eads became ill with severe bronchitis. Raising the abutments and trying to figure out how to build the piers out in the river was proving so difficult it was weighing on him both mentally and physically. Eads became so sick he made multiple trips to Europe to rest under his doctor's orders. I think the forces that they were dealing with for the, the piers and the abutments were, were quite massive. So um, at a low water level, um, 
water passes by St. Louis at four feet per second and at high water level around 12 feet per second. If you just took a snapshot of the river at any one moment, uh, 1.68 million gallons of water pass by each second. So not only did Eads have to design a bridge that would be structurally strong enough for trains and cars and pedestrians to go over it, but also dealing with the kind of constant onslaught of the Mississippi River. Because of the depth of the bedrock and the rush of the river, Eads and his engineers were having troubles devising a way that workmen would be able to lay firm foundations without interference from the river's current and shifting bottom. It was on one of these trips to Europe that Eads met with a team of French and English engineers that he got the idea to use a pneumatic caisson. A caisson is a watertight structure within which construction work can be carried out underwater. The caisson works in a similar way to the diving bell, like sticking an upside-down cup in water. To sink the caissons through the mud and the sand in an attempt to get them down to bedrock, Limestone blocks used to build the piers were stacked on top of the caisson and wooden pilings guided its descent. A passageway was left in the middle for stairs, which gave access into the work chamber. Two 215-foot workboats were used to support the machinery and maneuver the seven-ton blocks into place. Once the caisson reached river bottom, workers would go down. Workers would go down through those airlocks and connect pumps that would pump out the sand that's at the bottom of that caisson. And as the sand is sucked out, the pressurization is such that the caisson sinks inside of the sand. And so they keep doing that and keep doing that until the caisson hits bedrock. And once the caisson has sunk far far enough down to where they found bedrock, then they can start to lay the foundations of the piers and the abutment. And this is where the pneumatic part of the caisson is important because they needed that pressurized air chamber. So um, as they go down, the pressure inside of the tubes has to get greater uh, because the pressure from the river outside is forcing in and wants to crush the tube. So the, uh, the atmosphere has to be much greater down in the tube than it is up at the top. Each caisson had seven airlocks for men to work inside. In these chambers, they would dig out the mud and feed it into the pump that Eads had designed. Workers entered and exited through the center circular stairway, which led to an airlock. These airlocks equalized the air pressure with the working chambers below. The crews working in the caisson received $4 per day which was twice the wage of the bridge workers on the surface. The men worked by oil lamps, which gave off a dull yellow light. The atmosphere was heavy, and a loud hiss of escaping pressurized air was heard constantly in the chamber. Strange tales were told of the interior of the caissons. Normal conversations sounded like high-pitched squeaking sounds. Men found that it was impossible to whistle. A candle's flame, when blown out, would bounce to the roof of the chamber, and the candle would relight itself. Now, what they learned at this time is you can't just increase the pressure around a human being and not have any consequences. And that was kind of one of the biggest problems that they had to deal with. After a day of work, men began to complain of stomach pains. As the pressure increased, some were even paralyzed briefly after returning to the surface. The cramps often made it difficult for them to stand upright. Thus, the origin of the term, 
the bends. So basically what happens is when you are working at a pressurized, in a pressurized atmosphere, the nitrogen from the air um, would dissolve in their blood at high pressures. And so when the workers quickly return to the surface, uh, bubbles begin to work their way outside of the blood and would cause severe or mild joint pain and muscle pain, uh, paralysis, skin problems, um, loss of balance, loss of hearing. Um, and one of the more interesting symptoms of Caisson's disease is an unexplained fatigue. A lot of this, Eads would often suffer at a lesser degree following his over 500 dives to the bottom of the river. But he never really put the two together. The problem was that they, they understood that the pressurization was hurting these workers, but they had the solution backwards. They thought that the solution was to have the workers spend less time at the pressurized atmosphere. Um, but the actual problem was that they needed to decompress from that atmosphere much slower than the workers were at the time. And there were no guidelines on how long they had to depressurize at each airlock. And so it, if the if the worker was really um, insistent, you know, he could be out of that caisson in five minutes and may or may not suffer some serious... Um, health issues from the depressurization. Altogether, 15 men died. Two were permanently disabled and 77 others were severely afflicted. These mysterious ailments were some of the first recorded cases of decompression sickness. The East Caisson reached bedrock at 93 feet below the surface of the river and the West Caisson reached bedrock at 77 feet. The new regulations to prevent the bends or caisson disease, as the doctors were calling it, prevented all but one death on the west side caisson. Once all work beneath the surface of the river was completed, construction of the steel superstructure began. Part of the riverboat and ferry stipulations in their fight against the bridge was that construction could not interfere with river traffic. To overcome this, Eads came up with the first wooden cantilever system to hold up the arches out over the water while they were assembled. Once they got those pillars built, they started to work on getting these three arches to connect. What they did was that they, uh, they built two halves of each arch and they had them meet in the middle, right? So they would cantilever out from, from an abutment and a pier from the two center piers and they would build towards each other until they finally met in the middle. It was actually the first bridge to use um, uh, cantilevers uh, to get these arches to meet. Cantilevering something is similar to a seesaw, where you use a weight at one end to lift or support a load at the opposite end. In this case, the cantilever was supporting the bridge span over the water during construction. Construction on the bridge was halted many times due to running out of money and the swaying political landscape, and the steamboat operators also never letting up both the, the kind of ferry business in St. Louis and then the steamboats running up and down the river were absolutely against this bridge being built because they saw, one, the, the fer to the ferries, the bridge was an absolute threat to their business. Uh, and then the riverboats saw bridges as obstructions to them running up and down the river uh, and kind of plying their trade. So while Ease was off on one of his trips, um, the uh, ferry company and the steamboat companies um, contacted Secretary of War Belknap um, in Washington, D.C., and actually got him to 
almost call a halt to the construction of the bridge. But because of Ede's um, involvement in the war, you know, the building of those steam gunships, um, he, he knew President Grant. Uh, and so he reached out to President Grant, and President Grant called Belknap into his office, uh, gave him a dressing down, and basically told him to lay off of uh, the Eads Bridge and to let it be built. Because um, I don't know if you can picture a, a Mississippi steamboat uh, in your mind, but they had these um, these kind of ostentatious steam stacks or, or, or smokestacks that would rise up out of the boat. Um, I mean, they were functional in that they were smokestacks, but... Um, they had 50-foot smokestacks with crowns on top when, what, a 10-foot a ten smokestack or a 20-foot smokestack would have worked just fine. Um, it, was a, it was an aesthetic thing. It was not a, um, a functional thing. The steamboats didn't think, hey, well, hey, maybe we should cut down our smokestacks. They thought, well, we just shouldn't build bridges, period. Um, and what ended up actually having to happen was that those, the, the level of those smokestacks had to be cut down rather than never build a bridge across the Mississippi. This wasn't a problem with the Eads Bridge, though. Eads not only met the 50-foot minimum height requirement, but raised it to 88 feet of water clearance, or more than eight stories. The bridge was over-designed by Eads to appear strong to the layman. The confidence of the public was important and would ensure that the bridge was used. On July 2, 1874, in a dramatic and highly publicized test of strength, just two days before the official opening of the bridge, Eads ran 14 large locomotives out onto the bridge, well surpassing anything that the bridge was required to carry. On July 4, 1874, the bridge opened with a 100-gun salute. Then, with 150,000 people looking on, General William T. Sherman drove the last spike, completing the Eads Bridge. He, he had never designed a bridge or built a bridge uh, or manufactured steel, but Eads had opinions on all of these things. And that's, that's kind of one of the, one of the things that made, that made him so good at this was that since he had never built a bridge or designed a bridge before, he didn't have any preconceived notions of what this thing had to be, right? So um, he could come to it with kind of a fresh set of eyes um, and, and, there was no custom in his mind. The bridge itself is actually quite nondescript, but it is it is quite unique for the time that it was built. You know, they lived in the Gilded Age in which um, everything was over the top and ostentatious. Uh, and this bridge is just very simple and um, and its its form follows its function. And it has a certain beauty to it, but it's it's certainly not awe-inspiring. It's not the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, it's not the Golden Gate Bridge, but it is pretty in its way. I don't know. I think what's most interesting about the bridge is that um, it is, it's really important in the history of, um, of kind of civil engineering in the United States, right? This the, the first bridge made out of structural steel, this first to um, span this kind of wide gap of the Mississippi, but it was this huge failure uh, commercially. While the ferry companies may have been operating on borrowed time, they didn't just roll over and die. In 1885, the Wiggins Ferry Company leased more boats, and with the greater capacity it gained, it also lowered its freight rates from $0.09 cents per 100 pound to $0.05, cents, matching the Eads Bridge rate. As a further incentive, the ferry service offered a barrel of whiskey to regular freight patrons. These moves secured almost all the railroad freight transfer business for the Wiggins Company. 
This competition, along with poor railroad planning, was part of the failure. This company built this bridge because they thought they could make money on railroad tolls and tolls across the roadway. And neither one of those things really happened. And so a year after the bridge was built, it was bankrupt. Um, the cost of building the bridge was, I think, $6.5 million in 1874. And in bankruptcy court, the bridge sold for $2 million. While the Eads Bridge wasn't the commercial success it was hoped to be, it was successful on many engineering levels. It was the largest bridge constructed at the time, the first ever major use of structural steel, the first bridge to use cantilever supports while building a superstructure, the first significant use of compressed air for underwater construction in the United States, and used some of the largest, deepest caissons still to this date. James B. Eads went on to play an important role in creating the first permanent mouth of the Mississippi into the Gulf of Mexico, and was actually designing a multi-track rail system to haul ocean liners over land across the Isthmus of Mexico as an alternative plan to the Panama Canal when he died in 1887 at 66 years old. In 1927, the deans of America's engineering colleges were all asked to vote on history's five greatest engineers. They selected Leonardo da Vinci, James Watt, Ferdinand de Lesseps, Thomas Edison, and James Buchanan Eads. Built in Motion is produced by me, Justin Voss, with help from Ryan Isabel. And a special thanks to Ed Pocker for his help with this episode. Please subscribe to Built in Motion on iTunes or anywhere you find podcasts. We release Built in Motion once a month, so to stay updated, you can follow the show on Twitter at Built in Motion, and you can find us on Facebook. Or you can sign up for our mailing list to receive an email when a new episode is out by going to builtinmotion.com. I'm Justin Voss, and thanks for listening. Listening.